Good morning. Uh, happy Memorial Day weekend. This is awesome. It's one of those beautiful uh, weekends where the uh, universe gives you a bonus day called Monday and uh, makes it part of a weekend. So um, I hope that you've had a great weekend so far. Yesterday was beautiful. Today has been um, overcast, but I just think sometimes the earth wants to give you a hug, and so the clouds are the way of doing that. And so I hope that you step into that day with this. Today we're wrapping up a series that we started at the beginning of the month, um, pressing into questions that you have. Uh, last week we looked at faith and questions around faith, and uh, what does it mean to be a Christian, and what does it look like to to even understand the Christian faith and to step into the Christian faith. And there was a lot of good question dialogue that came out of that last week and baptism meetings and kicking off the 112 where we're, we're looking at what does it look like to grow. But I gave you a heads up last week. And for those who are here new today, I'll give you the heads up as well. Today what I wanted to do was talk about the other half. If last week was pressing into questions around faith, this week I wanted to press into questions around doubt, specific doubts that we have. And... Uh, and actually, some doubts that maybe we don't always like to verbalize, that we like to think. Um, I have a six-year-old little girl, and one of the things that she did when she was little, we would play peekaboo, and she would cover her eyes. And whenever she covered her eyes, um, I would disappear from the world. And, uh, and just recently, we were, we were playing um, this past weekend, and I was chasing her around, and she was trying to hide, and she had a really horrible hiding spot picked out. And, um, and I watched her go like this, and I walked up to her, and I said, Ella, when you cover your eyes, I can still see you, even if you can't see me. And, uh, and it was like this light bulb moment for her, like, oh, you mean just because my eyes are covered doesn't mean that you can't see me? And I kind of chuckled because here's a six-year-old who thinks just by sticking her hands over her face that she disappears to the world. And the world disappears to her. But I think sometimes uh, we refuse to press into certain questions because of that same reason. We're afraid of the implications of the questions. We're afraid what those questions might lead to, what those questions might cause us to think about. It's, we do this, right? There's conversations you won't have with your spouse because you're afraid what they might say. There are questions you don't want to ask your kid because you don't want to know the answer to. And if we're being really super candid, there's questions we don't even ask ourselves because we're really afraid that we might give the answer that we don't want to hear. That questions have a power to reveal. And by choosing to not ask them, we inadvertently conceal certain things. And I think that faith, if we're going to have a faith, if we're going to talk about a faith that is powerful, that is life-changing, that is hopeful, that is helpful, then it has to be a faith that we do not have to fear asking difficult questions to or about. And I think early in, this is something that organizationally we try to live out, and this is something in our marriage with Jenny and I, and this is just something in my life, I've found it's better to, to charge towards the questions that we're afraid of than to run from them. And today I want to deal with a couple of questions, all intertwined in some way, shape, or form, that most of us are afraid to ask about our faith. Now, there are a lot of questions that maybe come to your mind when I say that. And unfortunately, I will not be able to answer every single question that popped up in your brain. But I can promise you this. If I don't address your question, that is why we've created starting point. When you walk in and there's this nice glass living room, I am there, Jason is there, our team is there every single Sunday. Because if you have a question, no great, no small, no matter anywhere in between, we want to engage you with it. 
And so I recognize today I'm, I'm, I'm going to give this disclaimer. It's going to look different. I'm not going to answer all your questions. But what I want to do is tackle a question that I heard a lot in the midst of college right after I started wrestling through this question around faith. And it's this simple question that doesn't science make you wonder if there's even a God? Isn't science and faith, aren't they incompatible? Like, didn't what Charles Darwin published in the late 1800s, didn't that do away with a need for God? Wasn't God declared dead in the half century after that declaration when he unveiled for the watching world a theory of natural selection known as evolution? Like, didn't that get rid of God? And that even today, there is, there is an indictment that sometimes gets said about Christians or people of faith that they're afraid to, to press into the hard questions about science. They're, they're afraid to, to look into something like an evolution because it might threaten their faith. And I just happen to disagree with that. I think any faith worth living out your life in should be evaluated, reflected on, and pressed into. And so... I recognize that what I'm about to do will look different than most Sundays if you've been here before. This isn't so much a message as it is um, a journey around ideas and thoughts, and in the end, I think we will all settle in a place with the answer to this question, or at least the answer I think to this question about doesn't science make you wonder if there's even a God? To begin there, I want to kind of frame it. It's Specifically, my undergrad was in biochemistry and um, became a Christian halfway through college. So these were, were like fresh struggles for me. This was something I, I remember sitting in my ecology and evolution class, and this was an act of discussion. My professor um, really enjoyed picking on people who had faith, and so did I, because I just saw it as an incompatible thing. How does science and faith how does rational logic deal with the invisible? And kind of the linchpin of the scientific kind of objection to faith is this thing around evolution. And let me give you just uh, like the 30-second evolution so we're all in the same conversation. And here's the thing. Maybe you're not even, maybe I'm throwing a bomb in the audience. Maybe you've never thought about this question and you're a little afraid about what I'm about to say. Um, it's okay. I can guarantee you your friends and your neighbors are thinking about this question and if you happen to have kids, one day they will ask you this question. And so what I want to do today, no matter where you are, whether you're in this room or joining us online and you're not sure what you believe and you're convinced that there can't be a God because of science, or whether you're in this room and you're completely sold out to the Christian faith and you just want to ignore evolution, you just want to ignore the scientific realm because it's not relevant to your faith, that I would say for all of us, there is a tension, there is an answer in the midst of this message and to hold on. Evolution is really two large separate kind of concepts. You have an evolution that deals primarily with micro-level evolution. So that's the difference between a chihuahua and a rottweiler. They're both dogs, right? But there is an evolutionary difference. There is a contrast within the species. Little tiny chihuahua, great big rottweiler, right? Um, I am uh, an expression of microevolution. 
There are some of us who nature has prioritized as beautiful and has allowed our heads to fully shine and glow, thus removing the, the barrier to that shine and glow. And some of you have not evolutionarily progressed, and you still have something covering up that beautiful kind of shiny thing on top of your head called your scalp. But I've worked through some of that microevolutionary-wise. And then there's also the macroevolution. And macroevolution is the, the theoretical concept. It's this notion that at some point in the distant past, very distant past, um, a collection of chemicals happened to be in the right place at the right time and catalytically sparked something that was equivalent to single-cell life. That single-cell life organism replicated and continued to replicate, and eventually that single-cell organism became a multicellular organism that became some type of aquatic animal, um, and that eventually trans kind of furred into land. That land animal started to grow and evolve and eventually began to branch, and then ultimately a specific branch of that branching became monkeys that ultimately became what is now homo sapiens, or to be hyper-technical, um, homo sapiens sapiens, which is us. That's macroevolution, that we all started from a single point somewhere way back then, and it was a, an accidental convergence of a bunch of chemicals that just happened to bubble up. Most of us don't have um, any kind of like conflict with the microevolution. Our families, gatherings, reflect microevolution. But the tension for people with faith is in the macro evolution. And this was the thing oftentimes that was ridiculed in um, my undergrad. This was the ones when, uh, when I would have conversations about faith. This was the one that oftentimes people wanted to get brought up to the surf. But here's the key. This mechanism, both of them, there's a, there's a machine underneath it. And the machine, the primary machine in evolution is natural selection. That's the only thing I want you to get for the rest of our conversation, because this is the piece. I can't drill into everything, but I want to drill into this one thing for the sake of our conversation today. Natural selection is the process where organisms are, are with each successive generation, because of the pressures of the environment, tend to be better adapted for their environment. So the organisms that are stronger will replicate, and the next generation, the weakness in that species will pass away over time, and the strength will remain. Right? And this natural selection is the primary engine, it's the primary machine behind evolution. And that is what was fully expounded by Charles Darwin on his theory of natural selection. And this is the linchpin, natural selection. Now, I read a lot. I read a lot in a lot of various areas. And so this idea comes up frequently where if you choose to take natural selection as the only mechanism for life, if it's it, there is no supernatural, there is no God, it is just natural selection. Then what happens is everything has to be filtered, everything has to be explained through natural selection. The good news is if you can explain everything away via natural selection, then your argument continues to grow, right? This is something I come across frequently where, uh, for example, anxiety, which served us well in the plains when we would walk through, as our ancients did, and a bush would rustle. The anxiety in us, the vigilance in us, would cause us to pause and consider, is it possible that that in the bushes lurking might be some animal that wants to eat us? And so what would happen is in the midst of our anxiety response and cortisol level increases, that we, could, we would be really primed to do something called fight or flight. 
And we could instantly respond to any threat that may be lurking and hiding in the bushes. And the idea is, is that even if there wasn't a lion waiting in the bushes, just us being able to be aware of it and running from it naturally selected anxiety and worry and fight and flight to be a beneficial part of humanity, which is now an issue for us that you come across in books when they're like, the body that we have that's been naturally selected towards this naturalistic evolutionary theory is that the reason we struggle with anxiety and depression today is that our bodies can't recognize the difference between an email ping, uh, a Facebook notification, and a lion lurking in the bushes. That it all triggers a cortisol response, it all triggers an anxiety response, and that's how those, those things about us, those stress responses, are explained from a natural evolutionary standpoint. It's just natural selection. It's just brought in a feature that we no longer need. It's like being alive today and having a corded phone in your house. Like, it's just a carryover. But eventually it'll pass away. That's how natural selection works. But the challenge that natural selection has is it's the only source. Everything has to be explained through the realm of evolution. And this is, I think, the actual problem. This is the linchpin that I want to press into for those who are saying, doesn't faith and science not work together? This past, actually yesterday, our family, uh, we're having kind of a family day, and my daughter on Friday had taken part in a school function where we uh, had, they sang patriotic songs, they waved flags, it was, the news media was there, the long snapper for the New England Patriots came and spoke, like it was just this really cool moment, and, um, and so when we get in the car, we have about an hour's drive yesterday, and Ella says, I want to listen to patriotic songs, daddy. I'm like, okay. So I'm like, I won't say it because it'll trigger it, but I asked Siri to play patriotic music, and all of a sudden it's like, bum, 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 and I look in the back seat, and it's like, bum, 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 and my daughter's got the flag, and she's like this, I mean, she's going at it, and then it's like, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, and she's like, of the I see, and then it's like, this land is your land, this land is my land, I mean, back there going at it, and I am looking at Jenny, who's sitting beside me, and I'm like, what in the world is going on in this car right now, because, I mean, we are going from like, this land is your land, to I mean, we're playing taps, and she's smiling and waving her flag, and, I, and, and there's just a point after I get over the slight annoyance of this patriotic channel that we're streaming into the car, there's a part of me that just looks, watching her smile, waving the flag, and pointing from the redwood forest to the crystal white whatever, and doing the hand mesh. There's just a part of me, something inside just feels this incredible rush of love for her. And I look at Jenny and I was like, I don't know where that came from, but I'm so glad it's here. Because that, I don't have a box. And I'm pretty sure I would have lived my entire life without having that box had she not stepped into my world. And it was so incredibly moving. Like, the 15 minutes that followed just became this sweet, precious moment for me. Because I looked at this little human and all of her uniqueness, and I just felt profound love for her. Now, here's the challenge. If evolution, natural selection, is the reason for everything, then what I experienced yesterday in the car was an illusion. 
It's my brain sending chemicals to my body to make me want to protect my next offspring because that's how my DNA continues into future generations. If natural selection is all there is, naturalistic, evolutionary, that's it, then everything I experienced yesterday was an illusion meant to cause me to protect her so that my DNA goes on one more generation. That's it. Which, I've never heard a love song like that. Right? I, I never looked at Jenny and said, girl, when you look at me, the oxytocin, it starts to flow. And then the vasopressin starts to rise and you know where I want to go. Right? Like, that doesn't work. I don't look at her and say, the, the chemical alignment in your eyes with the natural light reflection off creates a very moving experience internally for me that is merely an illusion, but it makes me like the color of your retinas. <laughs> right? Like, it doesn't work. Like, nobody. And Sharon's not writing a song when he writes a song about perfect, about the DNA. He's like, I found a love for me. Well, that's an illusion, Ed. Right? She's not perfect. There's just something in you that thinks that she might be a good mix and mashup and remix of your DNA. Dancing in the dark, right? I mean, like, what? No. But all of our love songs, do you pay attention to them? What do our love songs cause us to do? They don't talk about oxytocin or vasopressin, which are the two primary hormones in our brain that drive it. They don't talk about dopamine. They don't talk about, I'm not even into the lust category. I'm just talking about the positive chemicals that you feel that you have up here that happens in those kind of love relationships. Like, songs don't talk about it. What do love songs talk about? It's like, I will go anywhere for you. I love you forever. You're my angel. Heaven is here. Right? Our love songs tend to be divine in how they speak and sing. They, they seem to elevate beyond some mere chemical illusion and, and some random bumping of electrons inside or neurons inside my mind. And it's not just in love, though I think love songs would never work if they were naturally selected oriented. Uh, it's not just that. It's the other things too. Beauty, art, music. Why? If natural selection is the only explanation, then why does our species drone towards music? Why did, when I started singing a patriotic song, something inside of you was moved? Like, think about it. Some of the highest paid people in our species are people who contribute absolutely nothing to the propagation of our species. Unless your argument is that somehow Marvin Gaye does help, let's get it on. That is it. They contribute nothing of value and significance from a naturalistic evolutionary standpoint. They just give us notes that happen to be in alignment with each other in a certain way that our brain registers as pleasant or catchy. That's an issue. We don't, we don't see birds walking around with little earbirds, like uh, earbirds. Right? I just made that up. <laughs> I'm copywriting it. It was awesome. Right? Like, they don't walk around with little earbirds, like listening to other birds chirp. They're not like, oh, have you heard the new like, tweet, tweet song that, that the, the robin just put out? 
No, they don't do that. They don't build nests and then take pictures of that nest and put it in a museum. Like there is none of that. Why? Because somehow naturalistic evolution does not explain our love for beauty. It does not explain our love for music. It does not explain our love for art. It would be an accident. There's no need. And yet we love those things. We're drawn to those things, and none of them could have come from natural selection alone. Take, for example, suffering. Let's just look at suffering for a second. When we talk about suffering, which is typically one of the primary objections that people have, it it is a tension point for many in this conversation around faith. The, The injustice in the world, the lack of fairness, that we sincerely, deeply believe that people should be treated justly, that hunger should not be something that happens every single day, that we recognize that people should not be oppressed and and murdered. In the 20th century, the rise of social Darwinism, uh, so Charles Darwin's cousin helps to promote this concept that eventually becomes what we call social Darwinism and a subset of that called eugenics. And eugenics was this idea that we should um, basically focus our species on replicating only the strong survive. And what would happen out of eugenics would be the systematic murder and termination of anybody and anyone that was deemed weak or inferior. Our, na- our, our own government sterilized people with disabilities so that they wouldn't have offspring. And that, that engine of eugenics was roaring really hard in our nation until another nation or two across the ocean bought hold of the idea and took it to its logical conclusion. His name was Adolf Hitler, and he would create concentration camps where the undesirables, the weak, the genetically inferior, would be led into ovens and gas chambers, and they would be systematically massacred. And between Hitler and Stalin, just those two alone, born out of this mindset, 20 million people would die in the span of 10 years. And eugenics, which was the popular idea amongst the elites, because it was the embodiment of naturalistic, evolutionary thinking, all of a sudden became unpopular when they saw what it produced. The world did not like what they saw. And yet, here is the irony, and this is going to grate and this is going to bother, but the irony is that everything eugenics propagated and all the logical arguments that Hitler and Stalin would lay out, they were born out of a naturalistic, framework. Because death, destruction, hunger, the eradication of the weak to value the strong are the mechanisms of natural selection. That is how naturalists, that's how natural selection works. It's built on death, destruction, violence, and exploitation of the strong, of the weak by the strong. We call that National Geographic Channel. Isn't that what you watch when you watch a planet Earth species show. Is that what, that's what you watch. And yet, we can watch it with animals and be okay, but the moment it enters the realm, like I just mentioned, something inside of you grates at the idea. Something inside of you gets angry at the notion that two men systematically murder 20 million people because they were seen as weak and inferior genetically. Where does that come from? 
When we have a problem with suffering, there is no platform to stand on with evolution. Because when we complain against suffering, we have to appeal to something higher than evolution. When we complain against the injustices in the world, when we complain against the systematic massacre of people because they're genetically inferior, as defined by whatever the camp happens to be, we have to appeal to something greater than natural selection. And I think it's what you see in Ecclesiastes 3.11. When Solomon, who in a dark moment of his life, with all the wisdom that wisdom brings, but yet completely detached from all spiritual things, he writes these words. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. What Solomon is writing there, what he's capturing in that succinct statement, is that when you look at the world, it is too beautiful, tantalizing, mesmerizing, too vast and too large to experience it all. The world, it's too big to see. You and I cannot travel to all the incredible views that it has. We cannot eat all the incredible food it has. We cannot experience all the various cultures that this globe contains. And yet, simultaneously, in the midst of our inability to experience the bigness of this world, there is a contrast inside of our hearts that Solomon points to here when he says that when in the midst of all of this world and its vastness and our inability to experience it, it's still in its satisfactions way too small. That we recognize that there's something that cries out for more than just this world. There's something that hungers and longs for something than just passing on our DNA to the next generation. We, we, we desire love and purpose. We desire joy and peace. Things that natural selection cannot produce and have never been able to supply. We desire justice and fairness. And yet none of those things are capable in the natural realm. And what does Solomon do? Solomon quoting C.S. Lewis in a, in a very kind of nuanced way, says, if you find yourself with a desire that nothing in the world can seem to satisfy, the most logical explanation is that you were created for another world. And this is what Solomon means when he says that he's put eternity, eternity in the hearts of every human. But there is something divine that has been stamped into our soul that in the natural world, there is almost something super and above called the supernatural. And it's that supernatural that we appeal to every time we watch racial injustice and we find ourselves in anger saying that is wrong. It's that supernatural aspect that we appeal to when we see kids being starved or murdered in schools. We rise up internally knowing it's wrong. That does not come from evolution and the natural realm. It comes from being rooted and stamped and formed out of the supernatural realm. Because natural selection cannot answer, it cannot address, it cannot explain all the cries of the human heart. Because ultimately, we are not just merely natural beings, we are supernatural beings too. And that for me, that question, that tension, that light bulb began to happen, that recognition that natural does not answer everything, happened to me in college. In the middle of my sophomore, the junior year, I got a job 
as a bank teller. I'd float around fulfilling, uh, filling in for people who were on vacation. And so naturally, I was going to towns and communities uh, where a vast majority of the people were already on vacation anyway. So I would sit six or seven hours a day in a bank. I would have little surges of activity, but it was usually six hours a day. I would just sit there. I didn't know anyone because I had only come in for a day or two. So I, I started reading a ton. Now, I am a nerd. Some of you have picked up on that. I'm about to fully reveal my nerd parts, okay? What I read that summer, sometime I'd, in certain weeks, it would be a book a day, was um, in the realm of theoretical physics and cosmology. And cosmology specifically presses into the origins of the universe. I told you I was a nerd, okay? Um, I really enjoy that. Physics, I like it. Science journals, I still read them. I still keep up with that stuff. I love it. And so I was reading a ton of these theoretical physics books and cosmology, and the thing that I kept bumping up against was this notion that at that point had become the defining notion in um, cosmology, the standard model, in fact, of the nation, I mean, our universe's origin. It was called the Big Bang. I want to give you a picture, because this is the picture um, of the, the like, one piece of evidence that revolutionized the whole cosmology circuit. And I know that most of you, let's just be real, do not care about cosmology. But this, this is interesting because this picture is the linchpin. It is the foundation for the Big Bang. The standard model that at some point in a very distant, distant past, there was nothing and something rapidly expanded and formed called the universe. And this image that comes from a probe that flies above our planet that Rate that detects kind of subtle variations in microwave temperature fluctuations, um, produced this image after about 10 years in its final form. And this is called YMAP, and this is a, a snapshot of what's called the cosmic background radiation. And what you're looking at is the echo of the Big Bang. And I remember dealing, processing, reading through all this stuff that I won't get into and this is the idea that kept bumping up against me. It was like I understood the what and the how, but I was haunted by the why and the who. Right? If there was a bang, you want to know what caused the bang, but eventually you want to know who caused it or why did it happen. Right? If something explodes in my house today, you better believe that I want to know why it happened so I can prevent it again. So this question around why naturally bubbles up. And it started bubbling up for me in the summer between my sophomore and junior year, and I wanted to know why. Nothing, nothing ever comes from nothing. How does a something bubble up out of nowhere? And yet that's the physical world we're living in came out of nothing. It doesn't make sense. And what I eventually had to recognize was that while science was a gift to me and while it was a passion for me and it was a discipline I enjoyed, science could answer what and how, but science was not capable of addressing the why or the who. It goes beyond the discipline of science. And eventually what happened in the aftermath of me starting to wrestle with those deeper fundamental questions, questions that most scientists in the realm of cosmology are haunted by, because you can study the Big Bang all day, but when you ask the simple question around why the Big Bang, who, the Big Bang. You start to bump up against this burning question that maybe there's something more than then just the natural realm around this. And that while science does not definitively prove and everything I've just walked through, does not address the answer of is Christianity right? 
That's a separate question. That was the journey that I went on after this first piece. I think what science ultimately does is it leaves us wanting to the darker, bigger, heavier questions around who, what, and why we're here. And that those bigger questions, that natural evidence, natural reason cannot address because ultimately we were created for not just a natural realm, but for a supernatural one too. That science has helped me deepen my faith, not destroy it. Because what it, often, what it eventually gave me was an appreciation for the blueprints of the universe, which helped me to further appreciate the architect of the universe. And then that's what science gave me. Psalm 19.1 says this. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Voyager and Juno are two different spacecrafts who um, Voyager in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, zoomed through the solar system, and then Juno in the last year, both ended up passing Jupiter. In fact, the big picture, the colossal image that we have of Jupiter that's super famous that everyone knows, that with the big red spot, that image of Jupiter was from Voyager, flying around Jupiter. I have a, a picture of it I want you to see. This is a shot of just Jupiter that came from Voyager. We had never had a picture like that prior to Voyager, spacecraft flying by. And all of a sudden, the majesty of a planet with the vastness of what it is that can handle thousands of Earths tucked inside, that sits, this great ball of gas, that sits right in the middle of our solar system. Voyager began to send those pictures back. And then last year, Juno did a flyby and began to snap pictures and still those pictures are being processed. And Juno sent back even more compelling pictures of even tighter shots like this one. Isn't that incredible? That's a, a tight shot. That, that's like Jupiter's selfie. Like, that's incredible. And the swirls of the gases and the great red spot and all the beauty and the majesty of that planet. That when the psalmist, without ever seeing that image, all he had was the heavens before him, he wrote the words that the heavens declare the glory, right? That he pins the skies proclaim the works of his hand. That I think when we, when we talk about the YMAP picture, ultimately what I saw in that was the echo of God's voice, not just the echo of the Big Bang. And that science does not have to leave you wondering if there's a God. I think what science ultimately can do is leave you in a place of wonder before God. In all of the works of his hands and the masterpiece of his mind that we call the universe. Let's pray.